I'm glad that you have joined us today. We're in this really incredible teaching series that we've been doing. This, by the way, is week 23. 23 now. Which, when I was in college and I played intramural sports, my number was always 23. Do you know why? Michael Jordan's number, that's right. So this is week 23 of this must be the greatest message of all of the messages in the series. No, not necessarily. I'll let you judge that. But anyway, we've been learning through the book of Romans, and it's been incredible, incredible, as we've been learning about the good news. And we've got, what, seven more of these? Seven more, and we're going to be done with the book of Romans. It feels like it's been a while, but also feels like we just started. And so... That's kind of the thing, the way things work, isn't it? And so we are learning our way through the good news. And it started off with, with Paul telling us that all of us are sinful and all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we are or how many rules or the, if it's the Old Testament law or a new set of rules, that we can't possibly be made right in front of God by following those rules. It can only happen through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the only way to be justified before God. That's the term that Paul uses. And in order to be justified before God, we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And you can become a child of God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ by God's grace and not by keeping a list of rules, not by being good enough, not by any of that stuff. And then he goes on and he says, now that you have that, now that you know you're saved, now that, or he uses the term justified, I don't want to get it confused. Now that you're, you know that you're justified before God by faith in Jesus, now God wants to save you or deliver you or lead you out of the wrath of sin in the world. So he wants to mature you. He wants to grow you. He wants you to learn what it's like to walk in him and walk the way that he designed for you to walk. And so he uses the term salvation to talk about that. And he says, but you don't do that by following the law either. It's not by following the Old Testament law. It's not by a list of rules or regulations now. You, if you try to do that, you'll just end up frustrated. That's what Romans chapter 7 is all about. All right? That's not how you're justified before God. It's also not how he saves you out of this world. But he wants to do that now in the Spirit. We are supposed to learn how to walk in the leadership of the Holy Spirit and to walk in light. And we he talked, and as we turned a corner, and let's see, two weeks ago, about how God wants to transform you and me. That's what he's doing right now. He is in the process of transforming. If we will embrace it, if we will walk with him and we'll follow, he is in the process of transforming us into the image of Jesus, the glorious image of Jesus. And that will happen in part now, and it will happen completely one day. All right, we're looking forward to that day. So we're in this process, and the rest of Romans talks about this process, how we walk in it, how we do it the right way. Last week, we talked about being upstanding citizens. If you remember, we talked about government and all that. And by the way, I said, you know, pay your taxes. That was one of the, <laughs> one of the things in the message last week. I got home, and guess what was sitting on the counter? My property tax statement <laughs> went up 26% <laughs> from last year, believe it or not. But you know what? They need the money to do the things. And so I will pay my taxes and then vote. And you may do the same. All right. So anyway, we talked about how to, how, to walk in, uh, how to walk in the light, how to be upstanding, how to be in good account with not only our community, but with others as well, and how we need to put off the works of the flesh and not, give, not prepare for them, not give them any room in our life. But we're going to walk and live on a different level. We're going to not walk as people in the darkness, no shady living. 
but we are going to walk in the light. Not only do we have to do that ourselves, but guess what? We also have to do that together. And sometimes that can be a little bit tricky because we are all at different places on that journey. We, we, have, we have different timelines. Some of you accepted Christ today or you accepted Christ last week or you accepted Christ 70 years ago. We have a lot of different road under the tires, so to speak. We have different experiences. We, if you grew up in a church, you br- grew up in a different church than probably the person sitting next to you that had different doctrinal beliefs, theological beliefs, styles. We've had, all of us have had different teachers and influencers in our life that have been showing us what's right or what's wrong, the way to live or not live, what the rules are, what the rules aren't. We, we all have different personalities. We have different ways of looking at things, looking at the world and looking at the scripture and looking at our life and faith and all of those things. I mean, this room is so diverse when it comes to biblical, to Christian understandings and backgrounds and everything. And when that happens, and not only this room, but our entire community, right, and our state and our nation and our world, there is so much diversity within the church at this point. How do we live and function with each other and move forward in a way that's healthy without dividing, without arguing, and without all of that kind of stuff, strife and all that that can so easily happen? Because Christians are supposed to be brothers and sisters, which if you have brothers and sisters or if you have kids, it's not always easy. You know, as Christians, we're supposed to be brothers and sisters who love each other and who show each other grace, who are where we get along. We agree on the fundamental principles of the faith. We speak well of each other. We have an open dialogue about the things that we disagree on. We're showing each other grace and kindness. And if, but if you look at Christianity as a whole, just watch it in the news or in the media, we're doing a great job. You sense my sarcasm because <laughs> I'm laying it on pretty thick, all right? That's a Tommy Boy quote, in case you're wondering. All right? Listen, there is a lot of struggle within the church, a lot of disagreement, a lot of division. What is it supposed to look like, though? How are we supposed to handle this? How are we supposed to think about each other? Paul knows he's writing to Roman believers that have a lot of different ideas, and he's trying to set those ideas straight in the first part of Romans. And now they need to understand how to coexist how to live with each other, how to walk with each other, how to grow with each other. And so that's what we're going to get into today. You know, in our church, even right here, there's so many, so many varying things. And we need to be able to be brothers and sisters first and foremost, and then deal with all that stuff in the right way. How do we work through it? How do we walk through this in unity and make progress together? All right, let's take a look at Romans chapter 14. That's where we are today. Romans chapter 14. Paul is going to give us a scenario. It's a specific scenario as an example. We'll learn a universal principle from it. All right, Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. I mean, that's probably why he's weak, right? You need need the protein. I'm just (laughs) Just kidding. All right. He eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Okay. What's going on here? 
First of all, Paul says you need to receive one who is weak in the faith. What's he talking about that? Because our mind might jump a bunch of different places. Um, He is, based on the context, he is not talking about somebody who has a shaky belief in God. It's not that kind of weak faith. It's not... It's not somebody who is sinning and struggling in life, and so they have a weak faith. That's not what he's talking about. When he says someone who has a weak faith here, he's talking about someone who has an undeveloped understanding of the gospel. So an immature understanding of the gospel. And he uses the example here of eating. Because we know that in the Old Testament scriptures, there were strict dietary laws, strict laws on what you could eat, or could not eat. That certain things were considered clean and other things were considered unclean. There was a certain process for preparing things so that they would stay clean. Things you could eat, all that kind of stuff. So in this scenario, what he's laying out is you have a weak or immature believer who has just put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, but they still think that they have to follow all of the Old Testament law. So they think that they still have to do that. Now, We know, and we've talked about this in the series, we know that we don't because we are no longer under the law, okay? So we don't have to follow all those rules. We're not required to do that anymore. We are free in the spirit, freed from the the law. But this person is immature and they don't understand that yet and so they think that they have to eat this way in order to be right before God. And the other believer has a more developed sense or a more mature understanding of the gospel to know that they are not limited in what they can and can't eat. Now, the mature believer may choose to eat only vegetables or choose, may choose to eat in accordance with the Old Testament law, but they know they don't have to. So this person, this immature believer who is, um, who is eating only vegetables, presumably this is an extreme case because because the, the, the Jews could eat meat. There was only certain meat. So they were eating only vegetables. Why? It seems like what he's saying is this person has just gone to the extreme. Like maybe they live in a neighborhood where they're not sure that the meat that they get at the market hasn't been sacrificed to some pagan idol, which Paul deals with that in other places too. But maybe they think it's been sacrificed to an idol. Or maybe they think that the meat that they would get has not been prepared properly or whatever. And so for whatever reason, they basically say, you know what? I'm just not getting anywhere close. Teetotal. I'm a teetotaler when it comes to meat. I'm not even going to touch it. And so they're living in a, 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 a life of restriction under the law and potentially fear under the law in this case. And so they say, I'm not going to eat meat at all. Only vegetables for me. That's the safest thing to do. I don't want to cross the line. And so that person doesn't understand. So that's the situation um, that's going on. And he says, do not despise this person. So to despise this person would be to look down on them or belittle them or consider them a fool or dismiss them. So he's saying, as a mature believer, you see an immature believer who has this immature belief, don't despise them, don't put them down, don't make them feel bad, don't, don't embarrass them over it, that kind of thing, All right? I was trying to think in, in our situation today, um, just a way to think about this sort of relationship because this is the natural thing for us to do. When we have an understanding that someone else doesn't, have, we have a tendency to hold them to our standard of knowledge. And so we want to judge them or we want to belittle them because they don't understand what we understand. And that makes us feel good about ourselves. All right. I was thinking about this when it comes to guitars, because I love guitars. 
All right, so I want to teach you, in case you don't know, and, I don't, and I'm not saying any of this to be condescending. You may know all of this that I'm talking about right now, but I know that some of you don't care at all about guitars. You care more about, I don't know. I don't know what else there is. You care about something else, all right? <laughs> but I love guitars. I, I work on them. I repair them. I research them. I study them. I know the different kinds. I know how they work. I understand all these kinds of things because I love this. Now, I'm a marginal guitar player, but I like to put it in this, these terms. I'm more of a mechanic than a driver, okay? I, I, I know how the car works. I know everything there is to know about the car or, or a good bit about it. Um, but you put me on the track and I'm, you know, I can get around and around. But that's about it, all right? So I just, in case you don't understand guitars, let me teach you a couple things. And we'll see what we're talking about with this principle. I have two guitars up here, all right? This is mine. This is Jimmy's. I asked them to beautifully present it. These are both guitars. And they look very similar to each other right? They have a similar construction. They have a body. They have strings. They have a neck, frets, headstock, tuners, all those kinds of things. They're very similar in construction. But this is an acoustic guitar. You know that, right? I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? And this is an electric guitar. And the way these two guitars produce sound or amplify sound is completely different. Completely different. An acoustic guitar amplifies sound acoustically, and an electric guitar amplifies sound electrically. So this is the way an acoustic guitar works. The strings vibrate when you, when you strum them or pluck them or whatever. The strings vibrate, and then this is constructed typically of wood. Um, sometimes there's other materials, but you have a top, and then you have a back and a sides, and there's bracing inside. So when you hit the strings, the strings vibrate and create a sound. They also vibrate the top of the guitar, which is called the soundboard. And when all of that is vibrating together, it resonates inside the body of the guitar and then projects a sound. Now, an acoustic guitar can have electronics in it, but just a purely acoustic guitar, that's how it produces sound. It's acoustic. It's, it's natural like that. An electric guitar is completely different. An electric guitar has um, pickups. So these are the pickups, and there are different kinds of pickups, and they can be in different places, but essentially the concept is the same between all uh, electric guitar pickups. Inside of this pickup, you have um, a magnet or magnets, and those magnets create a magnetic field. And then the metal string vibrates inside of that, metal, that, that magnetic field, and inside of this pickup is also a big coil of wire. It's thousands of winds of very, very thin wire, usually 42 or 43 gauge wire. So there's thousands of turns, five, six, 7,000 turns of wire inside of the pickup. And when the, uh, when the string vibrates in the magnetic field, that pickup, which I think is technically a transducer, um, detects that and creates a very small electrical signal. That electrical signal goes to whatever electronics you have, your pots or whatever, your capacitors or other things you have on board on the guitar, goes out the plug to an amplifier, and then the amplifier takes that very small electrical signal and makes it a very, very big electrical, electric signal. All right. So the way that this guitar produces sound is completely different than the way that this guitar produces sound. It's just science. So now, knowing that, let me ask a question. In this guitar, how important is the wood and the construction of the body of the guitar? 
Very important. It's everything when it comes to an acoustic guitar. The type of wood determines how it resonates. The density of that wood and the the grain pattern and all that determines how this resonates. The back and the sides determine how that sound bounces around. The construction inside, the shape of the guitar, the bracing that's inside, all of that makes a massive difference. It's everything when it comes to an acoustic guitar. Like this guitar has a cedar top, which is a little uh, abnormal, but it has a cedar top, which has a nice warm tone compared to spruce, which is typically on an acoustic guitar, which has a more crisp, clear tone. So those, it matters completely when it comes to an uh, acoustic guitar. How much does the wood and the shape of the body on an electric guitar matter when it comes to the sound of the guitar? Not at all. <laughs> Almost zero. You would make more of a difference than change, changing the wood on this guitar. You would make more of a difference bumping into your amplifier <laughs> than you would changing the wood. The wood on an electric guitar is about weight and it's about look and aesthetic and all that kind of stuff. All right. Zero. So if you go into the guitar community, Right, you go into a website, into a forum for the guitar community, and they're talking about guitars. You'll hear somebody talking about an acoustic guitar, and they'll talk about tone wood. Tone wood is the term. What type of wood is in the guitar and the kind of tone that comes from that, from that type of wood? But then every now and then you go into the forums, and you'll see someone who starts talking about their electric guitar and its tone wood, Right? Now, and they'll be like, my 72 Les Paul, that aged mahogany, you know, it just sounds so good. Well, here's the thing. If you understand how guitars work scientifically, you know that tone wood is not a thing in an electric guitar. Maybe it impacts the way the strings, the bridge, you know, maybe a little bit, but very little. And so what do people do in the guitar community, in the forum, when somebody who has an understanding how guitar works interacts with somebody who says, oh, the tone wood in my 72 Les Paul? Well, what do they comment? They're like, you moron. Don't you know? Don't you understand how guitars work? Don't you understand that that wood has nothing to do with the tone of the guitar? And they just eviscerate them, rip them apart. Now, what does that produce? It makes that person feel good about themselves for ripping that person apart. And it makes the other person feel terrible because they never cared to or had learned that that doesn't matter at all. Does that foster community? No. It fosters division, anger, insecurity, fear, all kinds of things. So what happens in the church when we have somebody who's newer to the faith or has had a particular kind of influence their entire life? Maybe they've just been in a church that believed this one thing their entire life. And then you have another believer who has a more developed understanding of the gospel. And they interact with each other. And the person who is less mature and doesn't have this understanding presents what they think or how they live or whatever, their thoughts on this particular issue. And the person who has a more developed understand person goes and attacks that person. Says, how could you believe that? How foolish are you to believe X, Y, or Z? Don't you know better? Does that promote any kind of unity in the body of Christ? Does that promote growth and love and fellowship? No. No. What we need, he says, receive one another. 
receive one another. Wherever you are, wherever you're coming from, whatever your understandings are, whatever your personality is, receive one another, but not to disputes, not to arguments. It doesn't produce anything. It doesn't produce fellowship, and it doesn't produce growth. What we need to have with one another is grace. Grace. To look at someone that disagrees with us and say, you know what? Maybe they don't understand this yet because they haven't been shown that yet, because they haven't been taught that yet. Or maybe they understand something I don't know, and I have something to learn from them. But that's never going to happen unless grace is present, unless love is present, unless teamwork is present, unless familyhood is present, where we're learning and growing together. Do not despise one another. Receiving someone who's less mature actually gives us a platform to help influence them and show them and teach them in love, not in despising. All right, on the flip side of that, if we go on in verse 3, on the flip side, and let not him who does not eat, so this would be the less mature believer, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So in this case, the person who eats only vegetables looks at the person who knows that they have the freedom to eat whatever they're led to eat, and they say, oh, they must be sinning. Because they're walking in that, they they think that they have freedom that they don't have. And so they're judging, in this case, the more mature believer who is walking in that freedom. And he says, don't do that either. That's not your job. They they are not accountable to you. They are accountable to God. He is their master, and they will give an account to him, not to you. And so we need to not judge when we see that. I think of one example for me, if I could think way, way back. Um, I grew up in a church that was extremely conservative, okay? Like the kind of church where you were not allowed to hold hands with a member of the opposite sex because that might lead to dancing, and you're not allowed to do that. Okay. So we also lived in an environment, I grew up in an environment where I was never, ever, ever, unless I was at a baseball game or something, I was never around alcohol. Nobody drank, ever. Nobody ever drank alcohol. And so it was just teetotal, and that was for a lot of different reasons, my, my, for spiritual reasons, but also my mother's My mother's father, my grandfather, was an alcoholic. He was abusive, and it was a whole thing. And so they had decided they were never going to touch this stuff. And so growing up, I was never, ever, ever around anybody who was drinking alcohol, ever. Except, like I said, in maybe some sort of public scenario. But, you know, sinners went to bars. You know, that's that's the way that I thought about it. And so I remember one time I was in school. I was over at my friend's house. It might have been, like, early in high school. Over at my friend's house. And they were part of our church, and his dad was a leader in our church. And um, I went into the garage to get a football or something. And when I walked, I was walking out of the garage, I looked, and next to the stairs in the garage was a half-empty 12-pack of Bud Light. And I was like, oh, my, I wasn't supposed to see that. Um, I... I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know. I, got, I had no frame of reference for this whatsoever. And so I, so I went home to my dad, who was the pastor of our church. I went home to my dad, and I said, Dad, I don't know how to tell you this, 
but I'm pretty sure Mr. So-and-so is an alcoholic. Okay. <laughs> now, now, did I know that? No, I didn't. Know. I mean, who knows? He might have bought that a year ago, you know, and he's had half a drink once a month for the last. I don't know. But in my mind, there was no room there. I just thought that Christians didn't drink alcohol. I thought it was sinful. I don't know if that's what I was taught, but it seemed to be what it was, was modeled for me. And that was my frame of reference. I didn't understand I didn't understand. I was immature in that. And so my first reaction to seeing him, to seeing this in the garage, and again, I don't know the situation with him. He might have been. I don't think so, but I don't know. Anyway, that's, Jess is looking at me like, keep going. All right, so uh, <laughs> I don't know. But my first reaction was to judge him because I didn't understand. My first reaction was to judge him because I didn't understand. I didn't have that understanding yet. And now I feel like I have a more developed understanding of that, which is the Bible clearly says it is sinful to be drunk, period, and stop, that's it. It is sinful to be drunk, and that's for a lot of good reasons, but that it is not necessarily sinful to drink alcohol. So you will find there's freedom there, and spiritual discernment has to be exercised there. And so there are a lot of Christians who understand that freedom, and in that freedom, make the decision never to drink. And that's great. That saves you from a lot of difficulty because, frankly, uh, being drunk, alcohol has destroyed a lot of lives and a lot of families and a lot of things. So if the decision is just to stay away from it altogether, I think that's great. And then there are other believers that have decided that they know what the parameters are. They know what the limits are. They're not going to cross the line into being drunk. And so they can be in situations where they drink alcohol and they believe that in the freedom they have that that is okay. I'm one of those, just so you know. All right? It requires spiritual discernment, freedom and spiritual discernment. Now, I didn't understand that when I was young. I didn't understand that. I've learned that since then, and I have a lot more to learn. And so we shouldn't despise one who has a less mature view than we do, and we shouldn't judge someone who may have a more mature view than us. We need to be gracious with each other, loving with each other, understanding with each other. All right, he goes on with another example, um, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. So now he's probably talking here. He doesn't give specific, but he's probably talking about religious observances here, feasts, festivals, things like uh, Passover, or maybe the weekly um, uh, command in the Old Testament law of the Sabbath. So one person says, this is the Sabbath and I must keep it holy and I must, I must not, you know, follow all the, the rules and the laws. You know, I'm not going to turn on my oven and all of that. Like, you know, if you have a modern oven, it has a Sabbath mode in it. Did you know that? Like, it's true. Look into it. All right. So where it won't, like it can't work on, on, on the Sabbath. It won't turn on. It powers off. So anyway, it's me didn't know that, but it's true. All right. So anyway, um, but so one person may say, yes, I want to observe the Sabbath. And, and in this case, because uh, for whatever reason, they're observing that and they're observing it to a T and they choose to do that. And then another person says, no, that's not me. I'm not going to do that. I'm going I'm to find a way to observe the principles of the Sabbath because we do need to do that of rest and trust and all of worship and all that. But I'm going to find a way to do that on every day and to spread that out. So there's not going to be one day, but I'm going to spread it out. We have the freedom and the spirit to figure that stuff out. Okay, so he's saying one person esteems one day and the other person esteems all other days. He says this, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So decide, 
Decide how you are supposed to honor that thing, honor that principle, honor God in it. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Okay, so the purpose is the same in both of these. He goes on, he who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. So both believers are following the Spirit in the freedom that they have within the boundaries, the clear, hard and fast boundaries of Scripture. They're following the Spirit to what he leads them to do, and they need to be fully convinced in their own mind, and then they need to have grace and understanding and love for each other as they do, even if they disagree. All right, we, are, we, we do lovingly uphold each, each other accountable to biblical boundaries, But we need to encourage each other to follow the Spirit's leading in our own lives and to be fully convinced. We are not responsible for micromanaging each other's Spirit-led development and maturity. We are responsible for our own. As a pastor, it is not my job to micromanage your development and maturity. It is between you and your master, your father, and the leading of the Spirit. And it is not your job to micromanage mine either. Just to know that we are all committed to the same thing, which is faithfulness to God. Trust in Jesus, faithfulness to God, and faithfulness and obedience to the Spirit. And if we trust each other that we're doing that, then we need to have grace for each other as we do. And the concern that Paul has here is not nearly as much about what they're doing as how they are interacting with each other as they do how they were loving each other and caring for each other. Verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. The dead and the living. We belong to Christ He is our leader and he is our judge. We are not each other's leader or judge. We are not responsible for each other, micromanaging each other's spiritual growth. We are responsible for holding each other to the true leader and making sure that we are doing this together. We're committed to him. We're confident in that. And we can trust him. We can trust him. You can trust the Spirit in your own life as you walk and follow Him, as He leads you. Have confidence. You can trust the Spirit in the lives of other believers. You can trust Him as He leads them to walk in ways different than you. And this is, I think this is a big question for me, and it's a big point of growth for me in my life. Because I tend to be the kind of person who wants to control things and, and direct things. And I have a tendency to micromanage things too. Jeremy will tell you that. (laughs) To be able to hand things over and say, God, they're yours. They're they're yours. And so as long as I'm confident they're following the spirit and committed to that, then you've got them. All right? We need to trust each other with that. Verse uh, 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? The same words he used earlier, by the way, judgment and contempt, uh, for both sides of that coin in the first example. Why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? 
for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. All right, we are all, you and me, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The word he uses is the word bima, the bima seat. And that is, it's like, think, um, the, the word gives a sense of a judge's bench. Um, they also called the bima the seat that the, um, the judge would sit in during the Olympic Games and hand out rewards to the, and awards to the, the competitors. All right, so we will all stand in judgment. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, you will not be judged for your sin. That's been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Now, every moment that you and I spend sinning is a waste of our life. It is, is putting us off course, and it's, it's, a, it, it's a total and utter waste of our life. But we will be judged based on our works, what we have done for God, how faithful we have been to him, how much we've listened to the Spirit and how much we've walked in the Spirit, how much we've walked in the light versus the dark, how, how trustworthy we have been. And we will be rewarded accordingly. So what Paul is saying is you don't need to judge your brother or sister in Christ. You don't need to despise them or judge them. They're going to stand in judgment one day, and they will be accountable to him for what they've done. That, you, none of us sit in the Bema seat. Jesus sits in the seat, and he will judge us. So our job is to encourage each other, is to challenge each other, is to teach each other, to show each other grace, to walk with each other, to, in many cases, disagree peaceably with each other. Because we know ultimately he's responsible. He's leading us. He will judge us. We're not here to do that for each other. We're going to be judged, and he will do that. Our job is to love one another. It's to teach each other. It's to encourage each other. And the minute that we turn on each other, we lose that. The minute that we begin fighting with each other, we lose the platform of love for change and progress to happen. And so we need to show grace and we need to love. To commit to trusting God, being gracious. Our goal ultimately is unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is built on truth and grace. And I want to say just not as a point of, well, I guess maybe a point of pride. No, not a bad kind of pride. But I think that you get this really well. I do. I feel like in this church, we have had very little di- division over silly things. We have very few arguments with one another. You show grace over and over and over again. We are very, uh, I think in this church, welcoming of people no matter where they are on the spiritual journey. We, we are very gracious here. And so I want to thank you for that because that's something we do together. Right? That's not something that can be commanded. That's not something that can be restricted or, or no rule that makes that happen. That's just who you are. And so I want to thank you for that. And I also want to encourage you that that attitude that exists here needs to be carried out to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ outside of here. One thing that I notice in this community, and this was very surprising for me moving from New York where I grew up to North Carolina. Uh, Where I grew up in in New York, we were part of the, the Baptist church. There's only one. Okay, <laughs> and, and there were like four or five other churches in town, then a massive Catholic church, right? but, but only like four or five other Protestant churches in town. We, the, the, I grew up in um, a fairly large school, roughly the size of East Rowan High School, pretty close. I had 450 people in my graduating class, 
I can count on one hand how many of them I knew were born again believers in Jesus. We didn't have the luxury of dividing. <laughs> we had to be brothers. It didn't matter which church you went to, we had to stick together. And then I moved here, and there are churches everywhere, and I couldn't believe how Christians talked about each other or how they talked about other churches. It's incredibly sad to see the division that exists here between churches. Where this church is talking negatively about this church or this denomination or this group of people or this pastor or this whoever, where we just like, there's no fear in throwing stones. What, what message, first of all, how does that develop any unity in the body of Christ? Does, does that create, yeah, does that give you, create unity or does that divide people? It divides us, it fragments us, it makes us look at each other more like enemies than brothers and sisters. And yes, we look around our community and there are, I mean, so many different churches here. I mean, there, there are churches that are one year old. There are churches that are over 100 years old. There are churches where, where when you show up, they expect you to wear a suit and tie and a coat. And there are churches where people show up in cargo shorts and flip-flops. And there, there are churches that are doing, you know, high church organ music. And there are churches that are doing rock music, you know, there, there are churches that believe this about how you're supposed to live or believe this or that about baptism or this or that about versions of the Bible or they, so many different beliefs. And it's like everybody has dug in their heels. And now all these churches that disagree about all this stuff are enemies. That's garbage. That is a tool of the enemy to divide us. How, the church is such a powerful force in the world. What God can do through us when we gather together and team up and join forces with the power of the Spirit. And we could be doing incredible things, and those things aren't happening because churches are fighting with each other. It's ridiculous. It's foolish. And it is not, not, not led by the Spirit. It is not led by the Spirit. And so we need to really think not only for us about how we fellowship with each other, but how we fellowship with other believers and other churches in our community that we may disagree with about things. That, you know, that they may not understand something that we understand. Or we may not understand something that they understand. Could you believe that? We're all on the road. We're all on the road. We're all learning. We're all growing. And we need to, it's, it's, it's about, it's not about how or where or when we worship. I'm not saying that like there should be one church in Salisbury and everybody should go to this. It's not that. All right, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes brothers and sisters need different rooms. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's good. It's fine. I don't know why everybody thinks that, you know, I, I think that the, the stylistic differences or belief differences for us to worship with people that we generally agree with or that we like the style of how we worship or how we dress, that's great. That's fine. That's, I don't think there's any problem with that. This is more about how we think about, speak about, and relate to each other. And looking at each other as brothers and sisters who are all learning and growing. Showing each other grace and showing each other love. And this, this thought crossed my mind this week. Think if Jesus came to Rowan County right now, like in, in, in person, in the flesh, 
Well, he'd have a lot of things to say, but let's say, let's say that he, he dropped in here and he was able to gather up one representative, one person who perfectly represented each church, every, you know, Bible-believing Christian church in, in Rowan County, gathered them all into a room. Now, I'm not going to pretend I know what he would say, but I think there would be two things that would be right on the front of his mind he'd want to know from us. Do you believe that nobody comes to the Father except through me? And I believe every single one of those people would say yes. And he would say, are you committed to walking in faithfulness to me in the Spirit? And I think everyone would say yes. And then he would say, then what's the problem? Why can't you get along? Ultimately, we're committed to the things that matter. Now, churches, different churches in the area, they may be, we may be doing it in different ways. We may be doing it in different styles, may have different understandings. But ultimately, aren't we trying to do the same thing? Was that it? Was that the timer? No. <laughs> when Jesus was about to go to the cross, one of the last things he did was go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray by himself. It's in John chapter 17. And in that prayer, Jesus prayed for his disciples because he knew what they were about to go through. But then he prays very specifically. I think it starts in verse, maybe verse 20, 17, 20, I think. He prays for everyone who would believe because of their message. So when he prays for everyone who would believe because of his disciples' message, he's talking about us. He's talking about you, me. He's talking about the believers that are gathering in churches all over this county right now, same time that we are. He's talking about believers that are gathering all over our country, that are gathering all over the world. He's talking about every believer that has lived before us. He's talking about everyone that will come after us. And his prayer for us was very simple. He said, Father, I pray that they will be one as you and I are one. And he says this twice in this prayer, that the world will believe that you send me. I'm telling you, you, I, you may, I, you probably already know this, but there are people all over the world and all over our community that don't believe in Jesus because of the way that Christians have behaved with each other. That's, that is terrible. <laughs> that, that people have looked at us as believers and seen arguing and fighting and disunity and bickering and judgment and condemnation and all of this, spite. And they've said, I don't want any part of that. When what God has planned for us is so beautiful, so, so magnetic, so engaging to see Christians who are walking in brotherhood and sisterhood and fellowship and love and grace and joy and peace in community and harmony. Who could have a problem with that? But that's not what people see. And so we got to do something about it. And we can't change everyone, but we can make a resolution for ourselves. And we can say, as for me, 
I will neither despise nor judge. I will not create disunity. I will not speak poorly of other believers. I will live in grace and walk in grace and conduct myself as a child of God with my brothers and sisters who are all then accountable to him, just as I am. And say, as for me, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I want him to look at me and say, well done. That I carried his character. That I was transformed into his image. So commit the same with me. Our fellowship and our testimony are intertwined. And so we must maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. All right, so let's pray together and make this commitment to him as a group. Father, we love you so much and we are so thankful for the love that you have shown us in the cross, Christ's death and resurrection in our place. And we as believers in Jesus have accepted forgiveness, justification before you. We are confident in it. And I pray that today there may be someone with us who accepts salvation for the first time. They put their faith in Jesus right now in this moment and say, that's what I want to be a part of. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose again and I'm trusting him to save me because I know I can't do it on my own. And that today as they make that decision, you fill them with the spirit and you help them walk on this journey that we are all on, all in different places. Father, I thank you that we're all in different places. It means we have a lot to learn from each other. It means that we have a lot to teach each other and encourage each other. So help us to do that in a spirit of grace, in a spirit of love. Because with as much as goes on in our life and as much evil is around us, we can't afford to be divided. You don't want that. Much like a... parent watching their kids fight, it breaks their heart. So too, God, for you to see us as believers arguing amongst each other, it breaks yours. And so I pray that you would fill us with grace, that you would fill us with truth, that you would help us to encourage each other and teach each other and challenge each other and move each other along, but to do that in a way that is loving and kind, in a way that builds fellowship and care. So that as we walk through all that's going on, we just praise you over and over and over again together. And not even just in this fellowship, but in so many other fellowships around us. God, we pray for the churches in our community, in our area, who love you with their their whole heart, that are committed to following you and serving you and trusting you. And they do that in different ways than us. They may believe different things than us, have different perspectives or styles or whatever, but they they are our brothers and sisters and we love them. We love them and we ask you to bless them. We ask you to lead them. We ask you to fill them as you fill us with grace and love. 
so that together in a bond of peace and a bond of unity, we can show the world around us who you are and what your desire is for us so that we can be an accurate example of what your family looks like. What the future is for us to live in your kingdom in peace and unity and joy. To serve one another, to care for one another, to love one another. And that we could do that now in the midst of a world full of darkness to be your light. And so, Father, we thank you for this, and it's a big responsibility to take on our shoulders, but we are responsible for us, our relationship with you, and doing this in a way that is honoring to you and pleasing to you. And so we trust you. We trust you to lead us in the Spirit as we walk together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.